0: Welcome to Grab the Gavel, a podcast from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. The conversations presented aim to show students the human side of judges, their diversity, backgrounds, and common struggles. We hope these insights might inspire students to consider legal careers or even grab the gavel themselves one day as a judge. Now, here's your moderator, Judge Zia
1: Faruqi. Hi everybody, welcome back to Grab the Gavel. Uh, I'm here with Judge Mariam Bozzi. Uh, I'm so excited to speak to her. Uh, it's always fun when I get to talk to somebody who is a recent friend. Uh, Judge Bozzi, so great to see you uh, and talk to you again today. Uh, thanks for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's always wonderful talking to you. I always enjoy our conversations and it's uh, it's always a good time. So thank you for having me.
1: Uh, one of the best parts of becoming a judge is you get to make judge friends and so just yet yet another reason to grab the gavel so uh, i want to talk uh you know about so much of the interesting work you know that you are doing now it's one of the things that i think has led us to uh, building a friendship as i'm trying to model a lot of the things that you are doing that's so thoughtful in how you move courts and the administration of justice but we have to go back to the beginning Uh, and so uh, i'd love to hear a little bit about um kind of your background uh, growing up. And the the question I always start with, because it's just easiest is like, did you think you were going to grow up to be a lawyer? Did you think you were going to grow up to be a judge? Uh, because we have so many students who are listening. So
0: tell Thanks. me, Miriam,
1: wh- what were you thinking?
0: So honestly, I, uh, no, I never thought I, I would ever be a lawyer and it never even crossed my mind that I, it was even possible for me to be a judge. I, uh, my parents emigrated here for really the American dream, more, more opportunity for them, for themselves and for their children. And so I was a first generation Arab American and a, uh, and Muslim American in a kind of conservative ish community. And so I really didn't think I would work when I grew up. I thought I'd kind of take on a more traditional role. Um, And there's uh, certainly nothing wrong with doing that, but I just assumed that that was the only kind of pathway for me. But the expectation from my parents was always still to do well in school and uh, to work hard and stuff. And so even though I I believe that that was Kind of the expectation and the role that I had to fulfill, I still worked hard at school to make sure that I was excelling uh, in that regard. And so it's uh, and so that's why I say like it it didn't even cross my mind I could have a career, let alone a career as distinguished as being an attorney or um, in the possibility of a judge. It just it, it's it's awesome now to think that I, I've been able to reach this considering who I was and you know where I grew up and how I grew up.
1: I definitely think it's awesome. Uh, uh, so tell me and let's drill down because, uh, you know, people may know and may not know Michigan, but where in Michigan, sort of what area were you growing up in?
0: Dearborn, Michigan. So it's like the people say it's, you know, the, the, the little Middle East right here in uh, the in the US, it's a wonderful, uh, very um, it's a com- it's particularly Dearborn is a community that has been uh, a home to immigrants you know uh before it was arab americans it was italian americans and polish americans and things like that so that's the community that i grew
1: up in excellent well i always love to think about when people's immigrant communities come from a very warm place to a very cold place what the first people thought when they saw that it was snowing i have a friend who's in uh michigan uh right now and i've already he's already sent me a a text of the snow falling so i don't know have you already had it yet or not we have
0: you know i'm (laughs) We had our first snowfall not too long ago, which was uh, actually it's been earlier in other years. And it's funny, because now years later, I mad at my parents like this is the only place you guys could <laughs> find, you couldn't find a warmer community. Yeah. But really, it was is, it you know, the Detroit area with uh, the Ford company and the auto industry. I mean, it was a, a dream area for immigrants who could come and find reliable work that paid a,
1: a living wage. So <laughs> but that's great. Well, so tell me, did you think it sounds like you didn't think you were going to go even to college? In is that right?
0: No, in fact, um, when I graduated, once again, as a smart kid, I graduated with honors from, uh, the, from high school, but I didn't apply to college and so i you know i graduated and it was the summertime, and i was like "Well, what am i going to do and there's a wonderful community college uh in the um in my community and so i you know you don't have to enroll in advance for that and so i went and enrolled in the community college and uh, it was really important time for me because it really gave me um it kept me busy it gave me an opportunity to not you know, have uh, idle time at home, but really be working towards uh, my eventual career. So I'm, I'm very lucky for that opportunity. And then I ended up applying to uh, the University of Michigan, the Dearborn campus, which sits right next to the community college. So it was a hop, skip and a jump away from where I was. And um, I was able to go into that in my second semester, but yeah, it just something wasn't something I really put that much thought and frankly, that much effort into initially.
1: And so uh, tell me about, you know, as I understand there was some mentors along the way, including when you're at your community college that that encouraged you to take that step of going to University of Michigan Dearborn. How did that kind of come about?
0: So I, um, well, first of all, my, even though I thought my role was not to work or things like that, I still had some important people in my family, people were still getting educated. And so they certainly pushed me along. But at the college itself, there was a wonderful program called partners plus. And it was a program that helped minority students transfer from the community college to four year institutions. And through that program, I learned a lot about advocacy about planning. Um, And ultimately, I was actually the education coordinator for that programming for that program before I graduated from college. And so it really, you know, we had Michael Thomas there who was running the program at that time. And just seeing that, um, really that belief that you can re- you could achieve more. Uh, he gave me the opportunity to go into leadership roles and to help people. And through that, I learned that I, I was pretty good at helping people that, that I could do this. And it really, uh, gave me more confidence in my abilities.
1: You know, such an important message, right? You just you need to see other people doing these things. You need people to, and also to guide you, right? You need it from both ends. Um, that that's so cool. Um, and the program uh, that you're talking about, Partner Plus, uh, sounds great. seeing the, the type of programs that I think people like ourselves, who who haven't, who don't have um, maybe people to follow in the footsteps of. When you're the first one taking that path, it helps if you can mm-hmm. see if there's not someone in your family, someone that's like you or near you that that you can follow. So that sounds awesome. So. Uh, college is now winding down, it's ending, and um, how did you decide to go to law school?
0: So I actually got a degree in political science, and as those many of us who've gotten a degree in political science know, there really isn't much you can do with a political science degree. And so uh, while I, I love that particular topic, I it didn't have very many choices. So I looked at um, either going into education and becoming a teacher, which would have required an additional year to get my teaching certificate, Um, or going to law school and really what it came down to is i um it would have taken me i I thought to myself if i went to law school and i didn't like it well it's only one year for a teaching certificate but if i go into education and i don't like that well am i really going to go back to school for three years and so it's kind of funny because even though growing up you know my friends used to joke i was the lawyer things like that. They tell me you're using big words, things like that. It really didn't occur to me that I could really be a lawyer even at that point. And so, but ultimately I kind of made a pragmatic decision. Well, I might as well just go to law school now and see how that works for me. And then we'll go from there.
1: I love it. I love it. Now that I didn't even know it was destiny. It just took you a while to catch up to see that that was your fate. So uh, you went to law school uh, and so you're starting out, uh, you know, for those folks who don't know and, and we've heard today it's a three-year program uh so you, you start out as a 1l right that's in my mind the hardest part um for me it was i was i've left the kind of uh being in that safe space in college there's a bunch of new faces you're starting all over and you're just worried about all these new things i thought i had such a challenging first year finding my good study group and things like that i know you had some additional challenges uh in your 1l
0: yeah. So I wasn't your, I guess, typical 1L student. My, I ended up, um, you know, once again, it was traditional community and marriage is really important. And I ended up meeting a wonderful man who I got married to. And my in-laws actually, I remember them sitting me down and saying, why don't you take a week off of school so you can get married? And I said, well, that's not going to happen, but we'll do it during Christmas. <laughs> and so, three days after my first set of law school finals, I had a wedding. And if you know anything about Arab married weddings in the Dearborn community, I had about 1200 people at my wedding. So it was a enormous uh, wedding. Um, And so I I was pretty busy. And then dealing with being a newlywed in my second semester, I was pregnant my second year, uh, and then had a newborn my third year. So certainly it had its additional challenges outside of just being a law student.
1: Yeah, the the degree of difficulty, right? Like in the Olympic sports, when the the harder something you do, you get more uh, points. Your degree of difficulty was like a 10 out of 10. So first of all, (laughs) I have to ask, what was harder first year exams or planning a 1200 person wedding? So I'll I'll tell you
0: this, I remember standing, sitting in front of my, um, or I was in a big lecture hall and my dad calls me. And at one point I just turned it over. I said, I don't care, do whatever you guys want to do. (laughs) Cause I mean, really at that point, I didn't know all those people. Those are my dad's friends, my in-laws friends and acquaintances. My dad calls me, he's like, I want to do this, this, and this, but they're telling me this, this, and this. And I said, I don't care. I don't (laughs) care. Do whatever you want. This is, this is yours. And I walk into my wedding and I have a seven tier cake with little cakes around and a dessert <laughs> table that spans an entire side of a hall. So that's what Very happens good. when you give control
1: over to your parents. Yeah. Well, it, it sounds delicious, I guess, if that's, that they that got that. And so, um, I mean, that, that sounds tough. I thought, by the way, South Asian weddings, the largest I've been to is I think between six to 800. So now I'm excited for my first, uh, 1200 person wedding. Uh, when your kids get married, hopefully I'll get invited so I can see. I've learned uh, my lesson. Never again. <laughs> you're <no, yeah>, you're <laughs> going to gap it out. OK, well, that's hard. But having a baby as a, a parent of a six and eight year old, I can't even imagine being um, watching my wife going through pregnancy and then delivery with the newborn. You mean even in a we you know, try to sh- share as much responsibility at equal as we do. That's a tr- tremendous challenge that you went through. And so how did you swing um, juggling all those different things? And obviously, you were still super successful. So how did you do it all?
0: Uh, an enormous amount of support from my family, frankly, and the, the drive to continue. I think what a lot of people tell me is I couldn't have done that or how could you do it? And I tell people, you are capable of doing what, it, what you're confronted with. You just have to believe you are. And so it was. it was a lot of juggling. It was a lot of driving back and forth, finding babysitters. And eventually I got into a flow. And it all worked out. But I do think, uh, particularly if you have a child, having the support of your uh, spouse or the father of their child, whatever your relationship is, or having some type of support system there uh, is incredibly important. And I'm very lucky that I w- that I had that.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I, I just I both have just incredible admiration for you for having done that. But I mean, for you to say that it just, um you know that you can do this right that's just so inspiring to hear because i think a lot of times we are our own worst enemy right we always think i can't do this oh i see these other people right like going back to partners plus i you know if you don't see other people who look like you or sound like you doing it you just assume you can't do it and everyone else might be able to but you can so um yeah. i find it super inspiring for you to you know to say like look i'm walking the walk i actually i had these challenges thrown in my way and look at me now so uh i know when we were talking before, we don't have uh, episode titles, but I feel like we should, and this one would definitely be, uh, you know, we talked about untraditional path. And I just think that's so cool because Mm -hmm. it is, you know, even in law school, right? You think that like there is only one traditional path, but your untraditional path began before law school. And that's just so cool.
0: Thank you. And it really did. I think I tell people, I, I just started walking along my path. Um, and that's, that's really, the, it, there is no right way to do anything. There's your way. And you have to be comfortable in the way that you're doing it. And if at any point, you know, when I talk to people, I, I, if at any point you're not comfortable, you're not happy, it's okay to pivot. Look for, look for something else, do something else. And uh, I, I really do truly and genuinely believe that you are capable of what you believe you are capable of. And so really, it's, it's nice to look at people and say they've done it and to serve as a motivation but even if no one else has done it it doesn't mean that you can't
1: i love that and i know one of the things that you have told me that inspires me is that and it resonates is that you don't have to be the smartest person right you don't do a person that goes to harvard law or mm-hmm. yale law school and even when you're there there's only one smartest person right there's only one person who's the number one student it doesn't mean if you're not it's okay. I mean, you know, to be the person who's in the middle of your class, that's certainly where I was, um, yeah. and that, you know, your substance is what matters. And so I find that to be, again, something that motivates me even now, right? Like, I'm going to be the smartest judge in the, in, in the courthouse, but that doesn't mean I can't be a great judge. So exactly.
0: Ends, right? And, it, you know, and it's funny, at one point I had to pull my law school ranking, and I, uh, I was right smack in the middle of my class, you know, at, at, you know, 50%. And you know what? I'm proud of that. I'm proud of what I was able to accomplish. And when law school students talk to me, they, there's this idea or image that you have to be right at the top. You don't have to be at the top. You just have to graduate. You have to get that law degree. Nobody cares where you ended up. You can be number one or the last one. As long as you have that law degree and pass the bar, you're a lawyer and you have every right to practice as everyone else in your class. So it's, it's what you do with your career that will distinguish it.
1: That's super important for all of us to hear. So what happens, and as you know, as law school is ending, uh, I'd love to hear about some of the challenges. I know we both uh, share a similar experience. of you know, being told that actually, like maybe this isn't for you, and then kind of wondering, like what's my path forward? Like you know, now as I'm graduating, what am I going to do with this? So you know, what happened as law school was closing out?
0: So I was busy in law school. I didn't get to do all the internships that some of my friends got to do. So when I graduated from law school, and we had a tragedy that summer as well. My sister-in-law had passed away from uh, breast cancer, and she was actually. Uh, a lawyer herself Um, and so our focus was everything but my finding a job initially and so when i finally graduated and was trying to figure out what is it that i want to do i reached out to every single attorney or after i took the bar that is because the bar was three months of nothing that you can do (laughs) other than study for the bar but I started reaching out to attorneys, and really was willing to sit down with anyone who was willing to sit down and give me a, a moment in their day. And in one of those relationships or one of those meetings, somebody thought they were actually meeting with my sister, not me, because she happens to be involved <laughs> in the community and politics. So it was kind of funny. But that person encouraged me to go and volunteer at the prosecutor's office and look at. And I had never looked at criminal at all, it wasn't even something I thought I could do. So I went and volunteered there and I'd help people, I I really, I fell in love with the practice of criminal law. I enjoyed the subject matter, I enjoyed the cases, I enjoyed being an advocate. And that's really where I found my true passion. And at that same time, I ended up, that same person talked me into joining the Arab American Political Action Committee. And I joined, and again, it was another person who gave me leadership roles right away once again showing me that i'm capable i'm capable of doing this i'm capable of uh, doing doing more and being more and so i was the first president first a woman president of that organization first female president of that organization so that's also something i'm proud of as well but that's how i ended up in criminal law and in politics
1: (laughs) and i think there's. Two such important lessons for all us, there, right? Like the first is if you're not born into a place where you have a network already built, I would say like, you know, for people whose parents have been lawyers or grandparents have been lawyers or doctors mm-hmm. or judges or whatever, they already know a lot of these people and things like that. And they can, they can guide you on that path Or uh, people have been in public service, right? In, in my immigrant community, that wasn't something where there was a lot of people doing. There was one person, uh, she was at the state department and she was the kind of, I even mean, she was someone that I looked up to because like, oh, there, there is a path there. So you can't be passive. You can't just think they don't have that. You have to do what Judge Bosi does. You know, you have to get on the phone. You got to get on now, get on social media, whatever it is, and just message people. You have to be able to cold call people and say, hi, I don't know what I want to do. I'd love to talk to you. And you'd be surprised even now. you know, I I cold call judges when I was thinking of becoming a judge. And they, you know, the people I talked to were like, yeah, come on in. I want to talk to you about it. And so I think that first part about not being afraid to, to network. And the second thing, finding affinity groups, right? Like finding groups that you fit in. It does, you can be, it could be about people from the Midwest. It could be, you know, a shared interest uh, in making TikTok videos. I don't care what it is. It could be your religious or ethnic background. It doesn't have to be. However, something about you necessarily it could be one of your interests, but finding a group of people to be a support group and want to build you up. That's huge.
0: Yeah, finding something that you can uh, relate to, people who you can relate with, people who are going to push you. It's funny because it was an Arab American political action committee, but we used to joke you needed to be a lawyer to join at one point because there were so (laughs) many lawyers. So it became a de facto kind of networking group within uh, the legal field for for a period of time. Um, And no, I completely agree. I think cold calls, people call me and I respond. And i think that's one of the if you don't you don't have to have a network exactly like you were saying you have to you can build your own network and more people than you uh would realize are ready willing and able and want to help you and help lead you and guide you and give you that advice that you're you're seeking
1: tell me about the role as a prosecutor i mean i, I like you thought also i had no interest in criminal law but once i started working at the you know the incredible uh, ability have to change. Uh, someone's life or impact someone's life, be they a victim or whomever they might be, someone that could be even uh, alleged of committing a crime, and you have the ability to try to be thoughtful and compassionate. It, it's uh, such important work. And you really rose up. But it, again, like you were hustling. You were, your whole life is a story about hustle in me. Uh, you know, and, and I always say that in a good way. I think hustling is something that we have to do when we don't have things laid out for us. But uh, tell me about your path as a prosecutor, so how you worked uh, through the office.
0: I loved what I did, and I think uh, when you work hard, when you uh, put effort into your work, it shows. You don't have to show anyone what you're doing. They see it, and that's kind of what I believe happened uh, with me at the prosecutor's office. So I worked hard. I developed a, a good reputation within the office, and uh, I, I actually applied for a position. I wanted to be uh, in what we called community prosecutions that were like the shootings, things like that, and uh, I, I didn't get that position. But <laughs> what I ended up getting is uh, a few months later, I got a call and was asked if I wanted to do mortgage and deed fraud. There was a task force at the time. And at the time, it was rampant. Um, and so I, I said, yes. And my friends who were doing kind of the, I guess, for lack of a better term, the sexier cases, yeah, uh, yeah. were like, are you in trouble? Why are they sending <laughs> you away? Because it was a different unit. And I said, no, I want to go. And really, that was that was an awesome and incredible experience for me because I got to work as a state prosecutor, uh, work with all types of federal agencies, as well as the local agencies I had already been working with. I got to do white collar crime, which isn't typical for a, white, a state prosecutor's office. I had victims in the UK, I had victims uh, all over the US, and I had local victims. and so. I got that real great breadth of experience. And eventually I led that task force. And at the time, I was the youngest lead attorney within our office. And so it was a really proud moment for me because that was the recognition of the hard work I was doing. But I was working hard because I enjoyed what I was doing.
1: I like to think that I only don't just like people because they have similar stories to me, but I have a similar story. And so it just resonates with me. You know, I had a colleague who, when I was a law firm, he to be a prosecutor he didn't end up getting the job because he was like well this isn't the ideal role i want i want something else and he's like after the interview he's like i shouldn't have said that i should just take it and told him like this is my job and you know i could have worked my way there once i got there and so when i interviewed to be a prosecutor i was rejected twice for a similar position the third time like oh we have an asset forfeiture and i didn't even know what that was i was like oh i totally want to do that i'm so into it (laughs) and um you know it's the same thing if you watch the wire the greatest tv show of all time when uh what the one police officer uh, gets like sort of, she has to go on desk duty, and no the job, no one, wants. she does asset forfeiture. And I was watching his asset forfeiture attorney was like, look, that's sort of true. But yeah, we're famous. Um, and so, but you get opportunities, right? I just think that the the lesson there, right, is like, don't think that there isn't something you can make of something. Don't just be like, oh, no one else wants to do this. So I'm not going to do it. like dive in and go all in. And then you can make it your own and grow it into something that you want it to be. So obviously it paid off for you. And then it, it I think, right, this, then you start to succeed in, and you're doing well, you're a you're um how'd you make that decision to pivot like all right i'm going to think about the court now
0: so you know as i started going along uh you know within my career and seeing at the COP, we have a large bench uh so just to give people context Swing county has approximately 60 judges on it but the criminal bench alone has about i think 23 to 26 judges, don't quote me. I should know the number, I don't. But um, so it's a very large bench. And obviously when in the career, there's some people you practice in front of uh, do better jobs than others. And so I was really disappointed with some of the rulings that I was getting. I just, um, I was one person you could rule against me and it was okay if you could articulate the law and why you were, but if you ruled against me and you you didn't articulate why, I didn't like that. I, I was one of those people. I wanted more. I wanted to know why. So because the whole idea is I'm going to learn and grow from this. And so there were a few rulings that I thought uh, did were were not along the the law but we're kind of in the heat of a a moment and i think there were very impactful rulings on some very serious cases i had and really it taught it what i thought is you know i can do this you know what we need is we need judges who are going to uh, apply the law and follow the law and make sure that everyone that comes into their courtroom is heard and gets and has a fair opportunity to be heard and that is why I uh, decided to apply for a judicial
1: opening at that time. How did it go the first time? Right? Uh, did you get an interview? Did Did you go? Uh, on no, the, the first time I didn't get
0: an interview at all. I was t- you know, I went out and networked with people, and I talked to some wonder once again. I call people judges i never met before, same type of thing. And I met some great people and everyone told me, you're gonna get an interview. You know, you're not probably not gonna say it, but you're gonna get an interview. You have the qualifications, you've done this. And so I was pretty disappointed when I didn't get an interview. Uh, and it's funny, I tell people, you know, the, they must have, based on the timing of my letter, they must have received the application, signed the letter immediately and sent it right back. <laughs> But I didn't, uh, but I didn't let it hold me down. I, I decided, all right, I didn't get an interview. What can I do better? And I reached out to those people who had met me and I told them, you know, thank you for your support. Unfortunately, I didn't get an interview but, you know, and I got some valuable advice and I took that advice and I continued to grow. I continued to work hard in my role, but I also took the advice to heart and I maintained those relationships, not because I thought that it would eventually lead to a position, but because those were people who supported me and I wasn't going to forget it just because what I was looking for didn't pan through. And so years later, another opening came in and uh, I applied and those people were there for me again uh, and supporting me again. And not only did I get an interview, I was one of four people that went to the governor's office for an interview as well, which, you know, I thought was pretty good at the time because I'd never interviewed. Before. Yeah. And so I went to the governor's office and it was, uh, the governor's office had just a great legal counsel and deputy legal counsel. And it was, a, I, I had a great time in that interview and I left and, uh, I didn't get the seat. I didn't get the appointment, <laughs> which, you know. It, it, was, it was fine. I mean, yeah. a good friend of mine got the appointment actually. And I, you know, we talked about our interviews and I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm really happy for you. And it, once again, I wasn't bitter. I wasn't upset. It's, it's a process. And, you know, sometimes I believe you work hard, you try hard, you go for what you want, but there, there's a time and time in your life for everything.
1: Yeah.
0: And looking back now, it, at that point, I was in my career, and I also was an elected official in the city of Dearborn. I was the, on the board of uh, trustees for the Dearborn Public School as well as Henry Ford Community College. And so the timing wasn't right for the schools, I think, too. So I believe in fate. Uh, a few months later, however, another opening came up, and this time they called me. And they asked me if i was still interested and they told me that um i did not have to apply again and i did not <laughs> have to be interviewed again i just needed to t- i just needed to send them a letter saying i'm still interested and so i i really credit that call to my really being a, a, a good sport i think i was a very good sport about how i handled everything and i think if any if there are any takeaways from that you know people need to understand that you might not get something now but there's always something else and that you never want to close off those avenues or doors.
1: I totally agree. It took me three ties three, three tries to get in the US Attorney's Office, multiple same for, for court. You just you can't give up. So I, I appreciate you putting it out there and, and reminding people you, you gotta get back up and keep going. So tell us about your docket. What does it uh cover now?
0: So I do a uh felony criminal docket. The Way Wayne County is once again it's it's the biggest uh court in uh, the state of Michigan and I think It's probably one of the bigger ones across the country as well, but it is a dedicated criminal docket, and so I do anything from gun cases to homicide cases to uh, uh, fraud matters, uh, any felony matter in the city, and that can be charged under state law could come in front of me. But what I also do that I really enjoy is mental health court. Um, I actually uh, had heard about an opening for veterans court that might be coming up, and I went to the chief judge and I said, you know, I'd I, I, you know, I think this judge might be retiring and I'm interested in veterans court and he said well he's not going to retire for a couple years but there's mental health court. (laughs) And you know why don't you come in and sit in with me on a mental health court uh, uh, um, uh, hearing so I sat down and we and I I watched that and ultimately I ended up taking that mental health court docket up. Um, and it has been one of the best experiences uh, of my career. It's really one of the highlights of what I do because in typical uh, criminal cases, you don't see anybody until they've, they're they violating their probation. You don't see them unless they are doing something bad. You don't actually see the growth and the success of different participants. Um, and so that's what mental health court has allowed me to do. Um, and um, if I could share a story, I yes. have, uh, I'm actually going to share two. They're they're slightly different, but yes. they're both very impactful. I had one young man who came before me in mental health court, and he was a really tall guy, um, a young black man, and uh, he did not like police. He did not like law enforcement. He was clearly uncomfortable uh, being in the courtroom at all. But for some reason, he liked me. You know, we 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 developed a, a quick uh, rapport. Um, And the first meeting he went to for mental health court it's my understanding he was punching the wall literally not figuratively he was punching the wall because he couldn't stand being in a room with that many people um you know two and a half years later he graduates from mental health court when he graduated from mental health court he had a job at chrysler he was our valedictorian for a little graduation and um he was able he was on medication he was uh working in his career he was now able to not only go to events where there were people but he was able to publicly speak at these events and it was a growing process and what he said is you never gave up on me even when i didn't think that i could you and not just myself the rest of the team pushed me and i what would have happened to that young man if we wouldn't have given him the resources and all the therapy we gave if he couldn't in his life be in a room with 15 people. And so that was a really impactful moment for me. And he learned that not all law enforcement is bad too. Um, And I had another young man who had a, who had just, it was a gun case, but he had before coming to me, he had a psychiatric episode and he was hospitalized and he comes before me. And uh, he just didn't want to do anything. He'd come to court and I'd tell him, well, you got to do it. You know, I'm next time you come, you need to report back. And he would smile and say, OK. And eventually he started doing all the things that I asked him to do. And then COVID came and I thought I kept telling him, you got to do something. I know you're not working, but you got to be busy. And he'd tell me, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Well, a few months later, uh, he surprised me that he had been secretly working on his nursing certificate and not telling me and surprised wow. me with his nursing certificate. And it That's really awesome. it teared me up because this was somebody who had these mental health issues. Uh, and he threw the program too. we were able to convince the prosecutor's office to give him diversion because he, he wasn't somebody who needed to have a felony on his record. And so I'm really proud of what we were able to do for him and what he was able to do for himself. But I think specialty courts give people the opportunity to realize they can do they can be more, they can do more.
1: I, I mean, those are both incredibly inspiring stories. And it's one of the ways that we got linked up is I was so uh, impressed by the work that you were doing mental health courts and trying to find out how we could do more it's clear that you love your job. It's one of the things that I love when I talk to you. It makes me want to do better and it inspires me to do better in my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to close out here, but I do want to touch on one uh, last subject before a quick lightning round, uh, mm-hmm. that you also do a, a ton on diversity, uh, equity, inclusion issues at your court. Uh, can you just give us like a quick hit on, you know, what, else, what does that work involve?
0: So I'm um, the judicial sponsor of the diversity, equity and inclusion committee for our strategic plan for the Third Circuit Court. And in the state of Michigan, we are the only court we just act. We we actually just put our plan into place and really uh, the diversity. Well, actually, it's diversity and inclusion committee. equity we know is a really important word, but as an organization we recognize we're not ready yet for equity and it's important that when we say we're going to do something we follow through with it and so what we think it's important that we need to rebuild trust in the uh, justice system. Uh, as a whole but also you know within a court we we recognize that people are overwhelmed by coming to court they're not coming to court because it's a good day they're not going out to eat and let's just stop by the courthouse and you know handle this family law matter um it's it's difficult and what we want to do is when people come into our courts not only do they see people that look like them they uh they feel that people are hearing them and they feel valued and uh, they're, they, they feel understood. You know, Some of the things we've talked about with diversity, even diversity and inclusion is signage. We should have signage that anybody who comes into our court can relate to because if you don't speak the language, how does that make you feel when you walk into a courthouse and don't see anything and don't know what you're doing? That makes you feel alone, an outcast, an outsider. And uh, when you feel like that, you're less likely to go to the court system for the support and the help that you need, depending on what your particular issue is. So we're doing that, and of course, for our staff itself, it's important that our staff we know we we know that diversity, inclusion, and equity is really important to having a, um, a workforce that is happy, a workforce that feels fulfilled. Um, you're not going to solve everyone's problems with that, but I those types of measures by listening to people and giving them what they need and what they want, you will be able. There's better employee morale, and that is important because as we go into the future, the world is changing. People don't want to stay in jobs that they don't like. And so this type of work is really important in order to have to continue to have uh, employees at your work uh, that want to be there. And again, it translates, uh, of course, to the public. Our judicial system only works because people believe in the law and okay. diversity and inclusion work. Uh, diversity, and inclusion is important to get to let people understand that the law works for everybody, not just a selected
1: few. Uh, I love all the work that you're doing. I think, as I said, uh, I've said it many times and I'll say it again, I think it's all that works and inspiring. So we got to close out with our lightning round of a few Mm -hmm. Michigan-based questions for you uh, as we go through this. Uh, So it is uh, a Friday night. You could go to a um, Lions game, a Tigers game, Piston or Red Wings, or you could watch it. Which are you picking?
0: okay so red wings and this is the reason i'm picking red wings hockey is a lot of fun to watch in All person right. at the game so if you're going to go to the game i'm going to watch red wings if i'm going to stay at home uh with my boys it's probably going to be football
1: okay they love right. football, love so. right. fair enough uh best middle eastern dessert this is not multiple choice you get to choose what is the best middle eastern dessert i should be eating
0: i don't know the name of it <laughs> it's one. just. I wish you know. I, I should have got that answer. But there's this little dessert that has like a cookie crust on the top and on the bottom. It can be like this uh, kind of the yogurt, or you can have pistachio, or oh you can yeah, have walnut, or okay. you can have dates. But they're like I'm a little this. kind of breakfast type cookie. You need to come. You need to come to Michigan so I can get I that dessert. But I'm going to get the name of that and I'm going to send it to you. But it's by far my favorite uh, Middle Eastern dessert.
1: Okay, that sounds good. Uh, and then. Uh, my last question: Detroit-style pizza, Chicago-style pizza, or New York pizza? And you can't just pick Detroit because you're from Michigan. So, what is your favorite? Detroit. Okay, I just had Detroit <laughs> for the first time. For those of you who don't know, here in DC, we just got our first uh, place. It's like the square, and it's like baked in like the deep oven, and it's just a ton of cheese. So, I, I will say, right? It's might, it's, it's heavy. It. You can
0: only have one piece. Yes.
1: Yeah. You can only so have one piece,
0: but think about how two money you're or two or three though.
1: <laughs> Um, okay, well, well, thanks so much for being here, Mariam. It's just uh, so great to speak to you, uh, and you are really um, just the work you're doing is incredible. So, thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for the work that you are doing. You are inspiring me. You're opening doors for people. I'm so amazed by all of all of your energy and the amount of people you are affecting by creating this podcast, by doing what you're doing on social media, and all your panels. I, I really, I. I think it's wonderful. And I, I know that there's so much more great things to come from you as well. So I'm excited to see everything.
1: Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, you too.
0: You've been listening to Grab the Gavel, a podcast series from the Rendell Center for Civics and Civic Engagement. We hope you've enjoyed this segment and learn more about the Rendell Center's mission and work at rendellcenter.org.
1: Thanks for listening.